be seated. He is risen. Good. Some of you, you're getting it. You're getting there. He is risen indeed. That's right. At Genesis chapter 37 is where we're going to be this morning. Genesis chapter 37. We started talking about Joseph last week, and I never even made it to the story of Joseph, so uh, sorry about that. That's just the way things are. We will actually get to Genesis 37 this week. In fact, that's where we're going to be. That's where we're going to start. I'm glad to be your pastor. I appreciate that. I, I... You guys deserve the applause, but it would just be me up here smacking my hands together. It would look kind of weird, but thank you for that. But it is, it is my honor and my family's honor, truly, truly. After about a month of doing this now, um, I am excited to be here. And, and not just because I'm excited to be here, but I'm excited because I believe God is taking us somewhere. I don't believe it's by accident. I don't believe anything has happened by accident. I believe that God knows seasons and God is bringing seasonal change. And that means that some of you are going to experience a rest that you have not experienced. But some of us, I believe it means we're going to experience some struggle. I wanna talk about that this morning. Joseph's life is a life of struggle in many ways. Now, eventually everything opens up, right? But I, I wanna walk into this text and I want you to see something that will not exactly make you happy, but I think it can bring you joy. Can I tell you there's a difference between those two things? And I'm, I'm just setting you up here because I know what I'm gonna say. <laughs> and it's faithful to the text. I'm not saying anything crazy and wild, but, but I want you to hear me. If we aren't prepared for the moments that are coming, then we are apt to fall in the moments when we're supposed to stand. You know, one of the beautiful things about Joseph's life is that he chose to walk straight in a world that was perpetually crooked. He chose to walk straight in a world that was perpetually crooked. And I wanna get into what it looked like for him to walk into that crookedness. So I'm gonna read the text, verses one through four, Genesis chapter 37. For those of you that I've talked to, I promise you I'm doing my dead level best to talk slower. And there is so much nervous energy in me right now. I just want to auction this whole thing off, but I am doing my best to let the Holy Spirit slow my tongue down. And so if I fall into a, a Southern drawl, then y'all know that I'm, I don't know how to talk this way. And so I'm just trying to adopt some of the practices of my homeland. <laughs> Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. And these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. We talked last week about the two ingredients that made and sustained Joseph's life. We talked about the ideas that God was with him and he believed that God was working. 
God was with him and God was working. We saw that from Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7, verse 9, and then from Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph's own testimony that he was confident that God was working about the evil in life to bring about his own good. And I think we have to keep those two ideas central in our mind because Joseph's life wasn't just about making it through hard times. I want you to hear me. Joseph's life is not just an example of how do I make it through hard times. That's what we want, but that's not what it is. See, the story of Joseph is not just one guy suffered injustice and figured out how to push through when the world was against him. The story of Joseph is actually a story about a man who was called by God to walk through that adversity so that he could save his entire family and the known world around Egypt. See, the, the story is overly simplified when we just look at Joseph and say, you are strong enough to make it through the difficulties of life. No, no, his calling was, everybody goes through difficulties. Joseph's calling was to walk through the adversities of his life to bring salvation to those who had rejected him. Sounds an awful lot like the gospel, doesn't it? It's supposed to, just if you were wondering, if you're keeping score at home, it's supposed to. And, and so I, I want you to hear this. This is, and so I start here, I start in verse two. I'm not gonna start in verse one. We'll get back to verse one in the second point. If you can help me out, just, just keep, keep with me. But verse two says this, these are the generations of Jacob. Now, typically, if you've read your Bible, you know that when the words, these are the generations of somebody, you know that what's coming is a long list that reads like the Hebrew phone book, right? In, if it was in South Carolina, it would be, you know, Teddy begat Big Dave and Big Dave begat Little John and, and Little John begat, you know, Arlo. And like, it would be on and on and on. This guy had kids and his kids had many sons and daughters. And then this guy had kids. It's constant. And so these are the parts of the Bible that you typically skip over. It's okay. It's okay. There's meat there, but it's okay. I understand I've done it too. Because some mornings I just ain't got time for that phone book to be read out loud in my devotions, okay? God's not judging you. I'm not either. But here's what's unique. In this text, it says, these are the generations of Jacob, and then it immediately says the word Joseph. The generations of Jacob are not defined by a bunch of people having kids. The generations of Jacob are defined by one man having faith. See, what sustains this world is not just people having children, it's people standing upright in a moment of adversity and deciding that they're not gonna be the end of the line because God has given us the strength to walk a little bit farther in his name by faith in him and by trust in his goodness. That's what sustains life. You can have all the kids you want. I told you, some of y'all have taken that verse, be fruitful and multiply, man, is there a life verse? Bless you. Bless you. I had two and my quiver was full, man. I don't have any energy left as it is. But have all the kids you want that will not guarantee that the next generation has a future. 
That will not guarantee that the people coming after you have anything to cling to. That will not guarantee that just because you put people into this world, that suddenly those people are going to be okay and that's going to be enough. I'm here to tell you, when we walk by faith, we literally rescue what is coming in the future, what is coming out of us, what is coming, the generations that are coming beyond us. When we choose to live and walk by faith, when we choose to remain upright and people of integrity, it literally has an effect and an impact on the generations. In this story, those brothers could have starved to death or been in slavery far too soon, but for Joseph's decision to walk by faith. The generations of Jacob are not this guy and this guy and this guy. The generations of Jacob are one man deciding to do life like he's supposed to do it. And I'm here to tell you, whatever you have coming after you. See, don't just see this as a bunch of children. If you can see this as the future that God is giving you, the promised future of your life, you want to sustain and preserve the promises of God over your life, then walk by faith. Choose to live straight in a world that is perpetually crooked. You literally impact those people coming after you. Let me just rant for about two or three minutes here and then we'll move on to the next point. The power of responding to situations that are outside of your control, it's accomplished by focusing on the sovereignty and providence of the God who promised that you would have no doubt that he is the Lord of all things by the end of the story. That's a complex sentence. That's like a British sentence because it has multiple parts. American sentences are short. I'm used to writing longer sentences because I'm just apparently perpetually confusing. That's my spiritual gift. The power of responding to situations that are outside of your control is done by focusing on the sovereignty and providence of the God who has promised that by the end of the story, you will know that he is Lord of all creation. Let me tell you what I have a hard time with. I have a hard time with the implications of the statement God is in control. I know that we say it, and it's not that I don't believe it. I do believe it, okay? So just, you can exhale. What I struggle with, though, is that in the moment, the experience of our life tends to feel, oftentimes, completely opposite of the statement that God is in control. And so if I could give you a better definition for God is in control, see, I think we say that sometimes blithely because we think things are going to get better and then they get worse and then we don't have any real context for understanding who God is. And I want you to understand who God is because he's good enough to know. He's better than you think he is. And in the moment when things decline, when things get worse, even though you just invoked, well, God is in control, but then you get a report that you were hoping and praying you wouldn't get, or God is in control, and then you find out that something tragic has happened. Can I just tell you, the better definition of God is in control is this. By the end of your story, by the end of your life, and by the end of this world, when you look back over the course of events, there will not be a single person on earth who has any doubt by the end of all things that God was actually, actually sovereignly in control of all things. You might not see it in the moment that you're standing in, but if you can see from a perspective in the end and then look backward, you will be able to say, he is Lord, he is God, he is sovereign, he is truly in control and he was truly doing things I could not have expected. And in the moment, I might have doubted. And in the moment, I might have lost a little bit of faith. And in the moment, it was hard to hold on to the hope that he said I should be holding on to. But I'm here to tell you, friends, that by the end of your story, you will know the Lord, he is God and the Lord, he is good. That is what Jacob and Joseph had to realize. Joseph has to realize 
realize that in the middle of adversity, it doesn't feel like he's in control. But if I'll hold on until the end of the story, I'll see that he was there every second. And so sometimes just saying God is in control is not enough. You have to be willing to walk out the story until the end by faith and believe that I will see that you are good in the land of the living. Some of y'all worried about the next generation. You should be. You know why you should be worried about the next generation? Because we're the ones that raised them. I'm sorry. Not really. (laughs) But I, I just want you to hear. I believe God has established uniquely people who are coming after us, people who are going to shape the future. And I believe that he has given us the ability to walk and to live in such a way that still influences them, that still awakens what God has planted inside of them, that still turns on the lights and we will see the beauty of what God is actually creating in the generation coming after us. I have great hope, not because I have great hope in people, but because I have great hope in God. And I believe that God has created people uniquely for the moment that he's created us to be in. Not a single one of us are created to be irrelevant in the moment that we're alive. If you're still breathing, then God has purpose for you. If you're still walking, if you're still, if you're still waking up in the morning, I'll say it that way because I'm not going to put any limitations on anything at all. If you're still waking up in the morning or some of you in the afternoon, depending on your schedule, then you are not irrelevant to this moment. Some of you feel like you're over the hill. You feel like you're past your prime. You feel like you don't have much to offer. Stop that. You know what that is? It's the enemy's voice in your life. That's the enemy's voice in your life trying to tell you something to keep you away from the destiny and the purpose that God has given you. Stop listening to any voice that says you are not built for this moment. If you weren't built for this moment and you're walking in Christ, then God would have already had you by his side. But you're still here and there's a reason that you're still here. And I'm just here to tell you, we will see generations rise that love the Lord. I want to speak that by faith. We will see generations rise that will claim Jesus Christ as their Savior. We will see generations rise that will do things that we could only dream of doing. We will see generations rise that will usher in revival that we have been praying for for decades. We will see generations rise that will do things that Jesus would have said about them. You will do greater things than even I will do. We will see it. I haven't seen it yet, but by faith, I know the God who has planted those seeds. Stop assuming that we're not here for any reason and everything is lost. Stop assuming that God is done with everything. He's not, he's still God, he's still good, he hasn't changed, which means his purposes and his plans are still assured and guaranteed. Do you hear me? Keep walking by faith, keep trusting in the sovereignty of God and keep believing in the promise of the one who has never broken his word to his people. And so here, I'm going to transition. That was actually one point. I, I don't know if they put it up there or not. I didn't tell them. It is a nightmare to try and follow me on that screen. I apologize, gentlemen in the back. Thank you for all that you do. I am a hard time. I understand that. Here's what we see, though, in the text if we work back to verse 1. Here's the reason that Joseph has to walk through the adversity that he walks in. Jacob lived... Verse 1, 37, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. Here's the issue. 
Jacob chose to settle in a place where he was called to sojourn. Sojourning is the act of traveling, and even if you stay in a place, you don't lay down roots because you know you're going to be moving soon. That's what the word sojourn basically means in the scriptures if you want it in sort of a layman's definition. Joseph, Jacob, excuse me, Jacob decided he was ready to be still before God said it's time to be still. He said, I want to just settle. I want to settle. I don't want to go any farther. You don't have to raise your hand. Please don't, in fact. You ever felt that way? Like, I think this is a real thing. This is not just a moment when we think, oh, I can't believe that old Jacob, that guy. <laughs> no, no, no. We experience these things. We experience the desire to settle in a place of comfort instead of move in a place of calling. Because we think that settling is going to bring us the peace that we've been longing for. But I'm here to tell you, when you settle in a place, when you try to lay down roots in a place where God has called you to be light, I'll say it that way, when, you've, when, you've, when you're trying to be heavy in a place where God has called you to be light, what happens in that moment is not peace. You're actually forfeiting the peace and joy of God because you're choosing your own pathway instead of his. It's interesting, isn't it, that two generations of this family now have wandered in Canaan, but Jacob just can't go any farther. Now, if I can set up the context for this, Jacob's been through some stuff. He, a couple chapters ago, went back to a place called Bethel. And at Bethel, God had revealed himself to Jacob earlier in Genesis. And now he comes back and God says, I want you to get rid of all your idols. All of them. Can I just tell you there's a spoiler here? He got rid of all his idols except one. The idol to settle. Because that's what it is. But in that moment, he got rid of all his idols because he was still traveling. And he said, he comes back into God's presence and God reaffirms the covenant, the promises that he made to him. He says, you are the carrier of the promises of Abraham and Isaac, your granddaddy and your daddy. You get to carry those promises. He says, nations will come from you. You are destined for greatness because of the generations that are coming from you. And he said, and I want you also to start owning the new name that I gave you when we wrestled. See, he renamed him Israel from Jacob, the one who struggled with God. He says, I want you to own that new name now. It's time. Can I tell you something? When somebody tries to rework their identity, it takes some effort and energy. That is not easy. For some of you, when I tell you that God's righteousness covers you, you still see your own unrighteousness, and so you live at levels below the place where God has actually called you to live. It takes energy and faith to walk out the actual place that God has put you. Some of you struggle because you're in families where you're arguing and you're fighting. And at some point, it's going to require us to own the identity of the place where we are, or else we're going to separate ourselves from the identity that we're supposed to be in and adopt an old one because it's easier. We have a nation and a culture that is dealing with an identity crisis. People struggling to understand who they are, how they were built, how they were designed, and what they're supposed to be. Can I tell you something? Don't ever make light 
of the crisis that they're walking through because most of us haven't walked in the righteousness Jesus gave us, so don't expect them to get it all right in the next 10 minutes either. See, moving from one identity to another is hard. It's difficult and it requires effort and struggle oftentimes. And Jacob is about to be worn out. Not only that, but if you work back then in his story, just after he goes to Bethel, he loses his wife, Rachel, the wife that he loved, the wife that was actually pretty. (laughs) It seems anyway. (laughs) Leah probably wasn't all that unattractive, but the Bible seems to play that up a little bit. Rachel was the wife that Jacob worked for for 14 long years. She was the one that gave him Joseph, the child of his old age. And now she passes away in childbirth, giving birth to Benjamin. He loses the woman that he loved first. Right after that, then he has to meet his brother Esau because then they have to bury their father Isaac as well. His identity has been redefined. His wife has just died and now he has to bury his father. Can I tell you something? Life will put you in positions where you want to settle. Life will beat on you and beat on you and it will try to rob your energy. It will try to rob your strength so that you, you become satisfied, so that you succumb to the temptation of being satisfied with less than God has called and designed you to be. And that's why Jacob comes to this place and he says, I've just got to settle down. God, I'm tired of walking. God, I'm tired of losing people. God, I'm tired of running this business. God, I'm tired of all these kids running around. He had a ton of kids running around. I got two, I can't handle it most days. He had dozens. He's got servants that are fighting. He's got flocks and herds. The logistics of moving every few weeks has got to be terrifying to me. I can't even fathom it. I almost lost my mind a month ago just trying to get an hour down the road. If God said your job, your calling is to move every six months for the rest of your life, I don't know how I would ever leave the altar. He said, I just want to settle down. The problem with settling is not that it doesn't feel good at first. The problem with settling is that you get used to it and you forfeit what you were supposed to have in the end. See, some of us have settled into a culture that tells us that certain things are good for us. Some of us have settled into the world that we live in and we've adapted ourselves to define success like the world defines success. If I get a promotion and I make more money, but I gotta work an extra 14 hours a week, then that's success. No, that's garbage. We haven't gotten along in the last couple of years. There's nothing really wrong, but we've got unreconcilable differences. Can, can you fight it for a little while longer? Don't define your comfort by a separation that you might be able to work through. I'm not saying that's always the answer. I know that pushes on some things. I understand that. I know there's legitimate situations of abuse and difficulty People are intractable. I get that. But we live in a culture that will always hold the carrot out to us and say, whatever you want in this moment is the only thing that exists. Now chase it. Chase it with all your might. The problem is what you find out is that the carrot isn't really a carrot. It's just a mirage. It's a counterfeit of the joy and the peace and the fulfillment that God actually has planned for you. Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, told this story about a goose, and the goose was wounded in flight when he was landing, and he hobbled over to a barnyard. This is a parable, not a true story. I don't know this goose at all, but (laughs) 
hobbled into a barnyard and he started to eat with the chickens. He would start to peck. He's a big bird, bigger than the chickens, but he started to peck out grain in the barnyard and he started to kind of get into the rhythm and routine of the chickens. They go into the coop, they come out, they go into the coop, they run from the wolf, they come out, you know, the fox, excuse me, they go back into the coop. He's over and over day by day. And they never really fly. You know, chickens don't fly. They, they squawk a little bit and throw some feathers around every now and then. And that's my best chicken impersonation. But they'll squawk a little bit, but, but they don't fly. And so the goose just got used to being there in the barnyard. As the cycle of the season came back around, the goose heard some honking in the air. The other geese were migrating and they were flying overhead and he, he looked up and he saw this beautiful V pattern, all of these geese flying and honking, flapping their wings and something inside of the chest of the goose suddenly was warmed. And Kierkegaard said, he felt like there was more and he started to flap his wings and he flapped hard a couple of times and he started to lift off of the ground but he hadn't used his wings in so long. And so he just sort of descended slowly back into the barnyard. And he looked up at the geese as they flew overhead and he just decided, no, that's, that's not for me. Kierkegaard said this, he said, he heard the cry, but he settled for less. See, I think that's so much the condition of the church. Not you. No, not you. Not me, no, not us, but the church. I'm not gonna look at you personally. I'm looking at every empty pew in here right now. Not you, but us, the church. But maybe if we were to analyze our lives a little bit, maybe, maybe we've been there. Maybe we've settled for a little bit less. Maybe the hard things in front of us were just a little bit too hard, and so we settled. And maybe that longing in our chest that there's more, you know, can I just get, I just want to be as plain as I can with you guys. You didn't hire a professional speaker, you hired me, so you got what you got. There are those moments, can I just be honest and transparent? There are those moments, man, when I'm in prayer and I will feel the presence of God and I, I know he's close. And can I tell you, there are, there are moments of regret that 10 years ago, you know, I didn't fast more. 10 years ago, I didn't settle my mind to pray more. 10 years ago, I didn't decide I was gonna get up 30 more minutes early and have more time with the scriptures. Like, there are those regrets. And can I tell you something? They're not negative regrets. They're not like, oh God, you hate me. It's not, it's just that in that moment, the longing of my heart exceeds my ability to capture what's going on. And I just wonder if maybe you feel that way too. Like maybe you've seen the people weeping and crying and some of y'all even spin around, you dance a little bit and you see that and you think, I don't even know if I could do that. But, but there's a part of that that looks so liberating to me. There's a part of that that looks so beautiful to me. And there's a part of you that wants to be free in Jesus like that. Like some of y'all grow up doing this in worship and then you stay behind somebody, right? So nobody can see you. Now some of y'all full on, man. You pull, your shirt's coming up, you're seeing, you know, your waistline, everything else, and that's okay. Jesus loves you, and you, you worship like you worship, all right? But I want you to hear me. There is a longing, I think, in us for what God actually created us for. But most of us are so apt to settle in moments when God calls us to travel. We're so apt to be 
to be just dead still when God actually says, press into me. We're so apt to set the clock a little bit later, even though God invites us into his presence. We're so apt to go on to bed instead of just saying, "Ah, let me tuck out for just about 10 or 15 minutes and spend a few more minutes in prayer for the day. And I know you hear me, I'm a pastor. I'm gonna tell you to pray and read the Bible, of course. I'm not actually telling you to pray and read the Bible. I'm telling you to press into the presence. Because I believe there's going to be a moment on the other side of that, a moment next week, next year, 10 years from now, when you're going to know that pressing in in that moment prepared you for the calling of God on your life and you're going to be prepared to embrace fully what God has designed in you, what he has given you the ability to do, what he has called you for according to the purpose of his life, according to the purpose of his anointing over you. And you will know that because you decided to do the hard thing yesterday, today is more full. Settling will always create regret in the end. Some of you like Golden Corral. Oh, man. I'm not preaching conviction here. You're all right. Enjoy. Get that fourth plate. You're good. Some of y'all are going to overeat this afternoon. You go ahead. Put something else on the grill. Just try stuff. I'm fine with that. Here's what we don't do when we go to a place like Golden Corral. We don't settle into the table, get our napkin, put it over our lap, fold our hands on the table and wait around for somebody to come take our order. No, no. Some of y'all don't even hit the seat. Some of y'all come in, you know, you're laying your stuff down and you're going right over to where all that chicken is in many different variations, right? There's wings and there's macaroni and there's, there's some green beans and you're piling on your plate. You come back, you sit only long enough to get that down and then move that plate to the middle because they'll have those people coming around on their cycle. Circuit riders, I call them. They're coming around, they're gonna pick up those plates and you're sliding back out because that chocolate fountain ain't gonna raid itself and there's a whole lot of things you can dump that mess on. You hear me? You're turning Golden Corral into a WWE event. You are not sitting still. You are going full bore at what is in front of you because you know to settle means that you'll regret the moment that you had. Some of y'all feel convicted. I, I'm, not, I'm not there, okay? What if our faith was that way? Can I just tell you what I, what I dream of sometimes? Man, I dream of people that come in and embrace and shake hands and laugh with each other and then lay their stuff down on the pew and come on down and pray at the altar before we ever get started. Because there's, there's really no reason not to. We came for one purpose, to get into his presence. We came for one purpose to be affected and changed by him. We came for one purpose to, to encounter the living God and to fall deeper in love with him by having him and his nature and character revealed to us in greater ways. We came for that purpose. So why is it that we think we've got to wait on something to start? You showed up, now start showing up. Don't sit at the table with your napkin on. Like, come on to the buffet. See, settling means that we will regret in the end what we did not grab hold of because we didn't keep moving. And, and so here's, here's what God does. Here's what God does. The love of God will allow struggle in your life as an antidote for the consequences of settling in places of sojourn. This is where I lose fans. 
The love of God will allow struggle in your life as an antidote to the consequences of settling in a place of sojourn. Can you walk with me for just a second here? I wanna show you some things and I'll be done. The Bible says that because Jacob settled in a place of sojourn, Joseph became the definition and salvation of the generations of Jacob and then it launches into his life which begins at 17 in this text. The Bible basically says that because Jacob settled, Joseph had to endure adversity, but God is not endure, it's not a punitive adversity. Listen to me, it's not punitive. You understand what I'm saying? It's not punishment. God is not punishing Jacob. God is not punishing Joseph. God is working the salvation of the family that he made a promise to in the end. But that means that there's gonna be some struggle that they're gonna have to walk through. God isn't afraid of disturbing us when he knows it will lead us to pathways of life and victory. That's a tough word for a holiday weekend, isn't it? Y'all thought you were gonna enjoy the day off tomorrow. Now preacher's gonna take care of that. God isn't afraid of disturbing us when he knows it will lead us to pathways of life and victory. I could say it this way, God's not afraid of getting on your nerves a little bit. Let me say it this way. Got a couple things I want to say. Karsten, my daughter, she just left. Thank, thank the Lord for that. That was divine timing, honestly. When she was two, about two, maybe a little bit before two, <laughs> she entered the phase of cognitive development where personal, possessive statements were going to be made about everything. So whereas it used to be a teddy bear, now it's Karsten's teddy bear. She actually, her nickname when she was a little kid was Karki. So it was Karki's bear. You know, it was Karki's book, Karki's TV, Karki's movie. You know, that, that's fine when it's the stuff in a room and it's cute. Ah, oh, she's learned something new until she moves to the rest of the house, right? She starts to claim stuff like it's, like, you know, like, like it's, it's, it's the uh, westward expansion. Like she's staking these things in. It's like, this is mine. Like Karki's TV in the living room. Ah, maybe not, little girl. <laughs> Karki's scissors. Mm -mm. Nope, can't have those. Karki's refrigerator, not if you're going to climb it and tip it over. Like, she would see these things and she would declare sovereignty over everything that she saw. This is mine, this is mine, this is mine, this is mine. You've got kids, you've seen that. Kids are selfish little creatures, need salvation, dark hearts. <laughs> but there, would these, there was this one moment that I specifically remember when she used to love movies, so she was the kind of kid that could sit in front of the TV and watch movies, so we had like these praise and worship, like my wife still can't listen to certain songs because we heard them for about 24 months straight, uh, and she just can't stand to listen to them. And so we would put these movies in, and she would just sit there and watch them, or she'd be in that swing back and forth watching praise and worship. She also liked the Madagascar movies, uh, the animated movies, and, and so I walked into the living room. We had these old hardwood floors and, uh, one day, and I saw her with the DVDs in her hands, slapped them onto the hardwood floors and went to work. So it's like a Mr. Miyagi kind of thing, like wax on, wax off, is that sort of thing. 
And she, and you could hear it like just scrubbing all of the data off of those DVDs. Like, no more, no more. Like that's, that's what it sounded like to my ears. 1395, 1395. So, um, and I saw, I was like, oh my gosh, what are you doing? Goodness. And so I reached down and I grabbed the DVDs from her and immediately Corky's movies. Like easy kid. And she started to cry because I wouldn't give them back to her. She got angry with me. She walks through you know, all of the cycles. You know, she's frustrated. She's angry. She's in denial. Like, so she's, she's looking at me like I have done this terrible thing to her. Like I took away the very thing that was bringing her joy. What she didn't understand at two years old is this, is that I was taking those things from her in the present moment so she could make full use of them in the future. See, God's not afraid to take some things from us in the present moment. God's not afraid to make life a little more difficult in the present moment. God's not afraid to bring you into seasons of difficulty in the present moment if he knows that your destiny is on the line in the future. Because from God's perspective, he sees the end from the beginning and he knows just what he's actually called you to do, the power and the might and the joy and the beauty that he's called your life to be filled up with if you'll walk in his will for your life. And when you veer off from that, sometimes God takes things from us to disturb us so that we will reroute our life and continue to trust him, continue to have faith in him, continue to walk out a pathway of, of, of sacrifice and surrender, not because he's angry with us, but it's actually because he loves us. Some of you have walked through some seasons when you were frustrated with God and you didn't understand why in the world is this happening to me? I've done everything I thought I was supposed to do. Why are you, are you angry with me? Is there sin in my life? Are you frustrated? What have I done, God? I'm just let me back up and redo it. And God's saying to you, I am just having to reroute your life because you have fallen into places of settling when I've called you to be travelers and explorers and adventurers. And when you fall into places of settlement, it is your peace and your joy in the future that is at stake. God will make your life uncomfortable at times because he doesn't want you to forfeit the beauty that he has planned for you. Joseph's life is a story about how God took away certain things from that family, certain bits of comfort, certain bits of peace, so that in the end they could be saved. Can, can I tell you something? Can I give you a little nugget here? What we got? I know I'm long-winded. Y'all walk with me for just a minute or two more. There's two statements Jesus made. <laughs> in John 14, 27, many of you know this by heart. Jesus said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. He said, I'm giving you peace by the Holy Spirit of God. This is a text about the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, I'm giving you the kind of peace. You remember the story early, I think it's in Matthew 8 maybe, um, where Jesus is on the boat with the disciples in the first storm and Jesus is sleeping in the boat in the middle of a storm that the disciples think is going to kill them all. That's the peace that Jesus is leaving with us. The peace that allows you to sleep while the storm rages around you. But then in, in Matthew 10, 27, Jesus, or 10, 34, excuse me, Jesus says this, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but I've come to bring a sword. 
Wait a second, which is it? Is he having a senior moment? He's only 33. Is the Bible contradicting itself? Can we not trust the scriptures anymore? Because Jesus said, I've come to bring you peace. And Jesus also said, I've not come to bring you peace. Let me tell you, there's an easy explanation, relatively easy. And it's this. Jesus will take a sword to everything in your life that is a counterfeit of the peace that he's brought to you so you can actually experience the fullness of the peace that he has for you. See, it would be cruel of him to let you walk in the kind of peace that a storm can steal from you. And so he brings his sword to carve away. He brings his discomfort to carve away. He brings his scalpel to carve away the things in our life that are going to keep us from experiencing what he's actually called us to experience. Some of you don't have peace. Can I tell you something? Just hold on for a little longer. God is doing the surgery that he must do so that the peace that you will have left over in the end is a peace that can withstand anything that's coming. The discomfort of life. It changes us because it drives us back into the arms of the Father. It drives us back into the place of calling. I want to tell you one story and then I'm going to be done. So whoever's playing, if you would, go ahead and please start playing. In Tim Keller's book, The Prodigal Prophet, Keller references a fairy tale that he had read years ago about a wicked witch who lived in a remote cottage in, in the deep forest. And when travelers came through looking for lodging, she would offer them a meal and a bed. It was the most wonderfully comfortable bed that any of them had ever felt, but it was a bed full of dark magic. For if you fell asleep in that bed, and if you stayed asleep in that bed, when the sun came up, if you were asleep, then you would turn to stone. And the witch would take the stone and she would lead it outside and she would put it in her statuary where they would be trapped forever encased in that stone. She had taken a young girl from a nearby village hostage to serve her. And though the young girl had no power to resist the witch, the girl had grown more and more filled with pity for her victims. One day a young man came looking for bed and board and he was taken in by the witch. He was a traveler who just needed to stay for the night. And the young servant girl had had enough. She said, I can't do it anymore. I'm tired of this. I can't watch another person's life be taken in this bed. And so before the traveler came in, after he had, after he had refreshed himself and he was coming back into his bedroom, she hid underneath the bed where he was to sleep. And she threw stones and thistles and thorns and sticks into that bed while she was underneath it. And so as he laid down, he felt something stick him in the side and he sort of swapped, he swiped it away and he rolled over on his other side, but then there was more stuff sticking him in the side and, and when he rolled over, she threw more thorns and sticks and thistles and rocks into that side of the bed. So every time he would turn over, he, wouldn't, he couldn't get comfortable. He dozed just a little bit, but he could never actually really fall asleep. And about three o'clock in the morning, long before the sunrise, he was fed up, he'd had it. And so he got up out of the bed, he packed his stuff, he got dressed, and he walked to the front of the lodge. And he said, I'm done with this. And he looked at the young girl who had come out to 
meet him at the doorway and he said, how in the world could you give a traveler such a terrible bed full of sticks and stones? He accused her, he wagged his finger in her face and then he turned his shoulders and he walked away into the night. And as he walked away, the girl said under her breath, the misery that you know now is nothing like the infinitely greater misery that a comfortable sleep would have brought upon you. And those were my sticks and stones of love. These are hard messages to preach if you were wondering. To tell people that what they're going through, some of the difficulties of their life is not something they've done wrong, but it's actually the love of God bringing them to a place of destiny. People don't generally receive that very well because we just want to be comfortable and we want to be well and we want to feel whole right now. But God brings his sticks and stones of love into our lives. There's this really beautiful text in Hebrews chapter 12. I'm gonna end with this text. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses one through three, the writer of Hebrews says in verse three, it's, it's one of my favorite passages, and it's given me a lot of hope over the years. He says, for the joy set before him, talking about Jesus, he endured the cross. Would you stand with me this morning? For the joy, please, would you stand with me? I have to say, please, my wife gets on to me when I just demand that people stand. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> he said, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. Can I tell you something? Jesus trusted that the Father's plan was worth the difficulty. He trusted that the pain that he was going to go through would be shown to be small in light of the joy that was on the other side of that difficulty. Can I just encourage you today? I know you said you should have started that 25 minutes ago, preacher. I realize that, okay? What you're going through right now is not a death sentence. It might be a life sentence. But a life sentence of joy, not of incarceration. A life sentence of, life sentence of grace. A life sentence of fulfillment and fullness. Some of you have gotten comfortable and you've tried to settle because life is difficult and I understand that. And God has brought things into your life that have made you uncomfortable because God cares about the fullness of your life, not just this moment. He loves you now, but he loves you too much to let you stay this way. Romans 8, and I'll pray. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, you know this, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God.